Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset for another week. It's Sam Bruce in the host chair. As usual, joined by Christy Doran, also in Sydney. But Christy, uh, a big name addition to the pod this weekend. Uh, the ABC's finest uh, reporter, sports reporter in the business and a rugby tragic herself. Uh, one of our colleagues who travelled to France last year and and sat in the gutter, literally sat in the gutter, uh, reflecting on the Wallabies' woes from Rugby World Cup 2023. It's a big hello to Kath Murphy. Hello to you, Sam and Christy. And that's an accurate statement about sitting in the gutter outside the Six Nations pub because it was too packed to get a seat inside. And that's exactly what we did. Tough times. It was a, it was a place to be, though. It wasn't it really had the TVs out the front there. And while the smells weren't fantastic, um, <laughs> the access to the bar was was fairly easy. And uh, yeah, the uh, the icy cold uh, Asahis, and they weren't too badly priced from memory, uh, washed away a few Tough memories of that trip. But, um, Kath, we got you on this week uh, because of the predicament that the Melbourne Rebels find themselves in. I mean, you've lived and breathed this team for, I guess, well over a decade now, really, haven't you? And um, I guess if if we go back to late last year and the rumours really started to bubble around and uh, Chief Executive Baden Stevenson kind of originally laughed them off as, you know, Sydney fear-mongering uh, or words to that effect. I mean... How have you seen it unfold on the past few months? And as someone with a, with a vested interest in this club, um, how tough has it been watching on from the sidelines? It has been so tough. I was surprised at how tough it was on Friday night. You guys know what it's like when you're in the thick of a story and you're in the middle of kind of reporting the politics of all of it. You actually almost forget that there's going to be rugby on the field on a Friday night and fans who turn up to the stadium hoping they won't have their hearts broken. And I have to say, I found it really tough walking up to Amy Park on Friday night because I bumped into some like Foundation Rebels members outside and I've known them forever. I moved back to Melbourne when the Melbourne Rebels were formed because I'd initially moved to Sydney because I wanted to live in a town with a super rugby team. I've grown up with rugby. I wanted to report on it. So I moved back here when there was a rugby team. So I've known these faces for such a long time. And when you are looking at people who have really stayed until now, you're talking about 13 seasons of pain, of no certainty of the future, And I'm looking into the eyes of foundation members who are queuing up for merchandise so they can give the club their money. And I had a lump in my throat going into the stadium. I really did. Just seeing the reality of that for people is hard because, like I said, when you're in the office, in the studio, in the off-season, sometimes we're all guilty of forgetting what it's all about. And it's all about those fans and those people queuing up for merchandise. And it breaks my heart for them. It really does. And then I, at the end of the match, I walked from one side of the stadium around to the side where the press conferences were to go and watch them. And I bumped into some really, some dejected fans, but some really angry fans at what they saw on the field on Friday night because the way they see it is they're turning up to hand over their hard-earned money to support the club and hope there's a future. And they didn't feel that what they saw on the field was good enough. Now, I feel for the players and the coaches, very difficult to front up and play your best with all of this going on. But unfortunately for the Rebels, because they've never played well, you know, that, it's hard to take that on board. Sure. That, 
that's the the cold hard reality, isn't it, Kath? That the, unfortunately the Rebels have have never played well, and and perhaps that's one of the reasons why they find themselves in this position. I'm sure most people listening on kind of know that the Rebels are in twenty two million dollars worth of debt. It's been widely reported. Kath, the question I've got for you is someone who knows and speaks to the board, someone that knows Baden Severson well, the you know the recently departed CEO there. How the heck have the Rebels found themselves in a position of, of such debt? And why was yep. it only came about in the last two months where it just seemed like the pennies dropped? I feel like at the Melbourne Rebels, there is a really good group of people involved. And you mentioned a lot of them there. There are great people on the board who really invested a lot of their own money to ensure the Rebels could keep going who are passionate rugby people, who are great off the field, great with community rugby, community engagement, developing pathways, getting rugby union into schools in Victoria that it would never have been in if it wasn't for that group of people. And they're really good people. But unfortunately, they never hired people who had the rugby CV to make decisions about what happened in the rugby program and on the field. And for as long as the Rebels have existed, they haven't had a super rugby program that is up to scratch. Now, they say, and they insisted to me in the off-season that they had tweaked the rugby program to fix the issues of last year. We know they recruited really well. But unfortunately... The Rebels have made a business out of making Wallabies into club players and not the other way around. And that's really hard to say, but that's what they've done. It got to the point where I worry when they recruit a Wallabies star because I worry that the rugby program will affect their performance for the national side. And I think that is a huge factor. Now, you talk about the debt. When you talk to former directors who've been stood down or you talk to people in rugby here, they feel they weren't adequately supported by Rugby Australia. They say Rugby Australia knew everything about their debt at every single juncture. And I think what's happened at the Rugby World Cup is it's forced a complete reset. Phil War talks about rugby no longer being able to live beyond its means. And I think what's happened is it feels to me like Rugby Australia almost wants to burn the whole thing down and start again, that this is the moment. From a Melbourne point of view, they don't feel like they've been supported. But then let's talk about the Brumbies, okay? So they are the most successful team on the field in Super Rugby. I understand that they don't feel supported either. They don't feel supported by Rugby Australia. They don't feel safe. That's the fact of it. Rugby Australia insists that the Brumbies are safe. But we have to start asking the question... Why do the Brumbies feel so unsafe? We saw how well they played on Friday night. Such an excellent side with a winning culture, well-drilled, great execution. Why do they have to feel unsafe in this whole saga as well? And that makes me really sad because winning is important. And when you have a rugby program that is inherently successful, why make them feel like that? Yeah, the Brumbies say they acknowledge they're probably, I think, a couple of million dollars in debt. Um, they, they're yeah. aware, they, Rugby Australia have, have are aware of that and they, they're working with them, I think, monthly to try and reach a, uh, you know, a solution there and also maybe work their way into centralisation, perhaps not as... Uh, cleanly as clearly as the Waratahs have, but certainly in some aspects of the rugby program. But Christy, if I come to you, mate, I think the overriding question that that people, that supporters out there have is, is how did it get this bad? How did it get to twenty two million dollars? Um, why wasn't there, you know? And this is a question for both the Melbourne Rebels and, and Rugby Australia equally. Is that why wasn't something done when they were four or five million dollars in debt? Okay, the alarms are going off here, guys. We we need to arrest this. How can we arrest this? What are we going to do in the future to to reduce this debt or or find a way of operating, um, you know, within our means, like the game, like Rugby Australia has to as well, ultimately. But it just astounds people, I think, that it's gotten to to that figure to twenty two million dollars in debt. It, it's a mind boggling sum. 
Yeah, and all the Super Rugby franchises are complaining recently around the $1.7 million that was withdrawn from Rugby Australia around the time that COVID started, and that was to keep the game afloat. So you times that by four and you get to whatever. I'm not a mathematician, but probably around six, six, six and a half million or so. And those various franchises, including the Brumbies, would say we're doing would be fine if 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 we indeed had those 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 sums. The bigger question is, you know, and and it's a good point that you make. Why are the Brumbies feeling like they're in this position themselves? Because on the field they're pretty successful, but and I say pretty because they make the Super Rugby finals, but they rarely win the competition. They can't attract a crowd. And that's an issue. It's an issue in, in Canberra and it's an issue in Melbourne. It's an issue right across the game is that they struggle to get crowds. And and unlike the rugby league or AFL, if you know, half your teams are going to be winning. So so that's a that's a it's a it's a unique thing that rugby's experiencing at the moment that when the national side doesn't win, that it has a, a flow-on effect to the super sides. And that is a that's a really valid. Uh, point and why we've found ourselves in this position but the game needs to do more than this as well like I've, I've heard of parents deciding you know this game's not for my children because we end up having to use our jumpers as 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 witches hats uh, and just not being organized enough and those sorts of things when when you go to a rugby league junior club or an AFL junior club and you get all the kit and the rest of it that all looks great um, compared to the parent having to put their own jumper down on a cold Canberra morning uh, as a witch's hat. So I think those sorts of things all play a huge part in how and where we are. Looking specifically at the Rebels, people are asking the question, and rightly so, Lucan Salakailo, so it's a, he's a good signing. He, his management's done really well. He's come back on 600K, and he's not come back on a national top-up. So even in the short term, with the Rebels in the difficult position that they've found themselves in the last 12 months, they've then recruited Lucan Selakai Lotta at 600k a year. That's just a mind-boggling decision, and it's allowed to and uh, something that's allowed to occur. Um, and hey, at the same time, Tanila Tupo, 1.2 million, about half that figure would be paid by Rugby Australia. So it's they're good signings. But they're expensive signings, and, and when you're doubling down and you struggles at the moment, that doesn't bode well. And, and money doesn't grow on trees, right? Or is it magically just going to appear this extra 600K times two for these guys? And I understand the desire uh, to get better and improve your squad in the hope that that will bring wins and that in turn will bring people through the gates. And this is all cyclical, right? We understand that. But um, there's got to be a bit of you know financial... Um, responsibility hasn't there so um kath if we turn it slightly to i guess the wider victorian and, and melbourne rugby communities you mentioned earlier um a couple of things uh, a couple of questions here what do you think the overriding emotion is and and what i guess if this team is wound up what will it do to the pathway down there because when we think about the rebels as opposed to the force there have been guys come through the Victorian pathway, uh, play for the Melbourne Rebels and go on to the World Cup last year. There was there was three of them, wasn't there? You they say Leota and Pone Farmsili. And if you bring Rob Valentini into that, who obviously ended up at the Brumbies, but is a is a Victorian born player. Now they've had more success in developing players um from their own backyard than the force have. And the force have been around an extra five years. So uh, I guess yeah, the two parts there. What, what do you think the overriding emotion is? And then what would that uh I guess the the uh, the winding up of the rebels do to that same community. The overriding emotion is a bit of helplessness, to be honest. And I feel it too as a journalist who wants to put forward the story of the community and how important rugby is to Victorians. Because the reality is that everyone who has been involved in the game at a high level and helped ensure the rebels still exist. They can't talk right now for legal reasons because right now the former directors of the Melbourne Rebels, they've just got that 60-day extension on liquidation. Yep. They can't talk for legal reasons. They've gone completely silent. Back in 2017, when the Western Force were on the chopping block, you saw this rallying of the community together. Everyone was so vocal Remember that image of Twiggy Forrest on the field with the community and the team? 
There is no Twiggy. There is no saviour. Everyone who's currently involved is silent due to 13 years and one game of promise with no delivery. The number of people in the crowd is so low that when you sit there, you look around and you think, well, this isn't showing signs of life. This isn't a group you can rally together. And I hate to think there were over 4,000 people on Friday night, which I was really impressed with. Tickets had only been on sale for four days. I was worried it would be less than a thousand people. So I I was reassured that at least there was 4,000 there. It was a bit louder at the ground than it looked on TV. Obviously still very sparse. But what does that crowd number go down to now that the Rebels have showed up and put in that performance with all that promise, saying they've fixed the rugby programme, they've recruited well, and you see them go out without a whimper to the Brumbies. Now, maybe that was just the toughest week of their lives. I, I don't know. I feel so bad criticising players who don't know what their future is, criticising coaches who are now on a four-month contract and they have a family and kids and everyone keeps saying Melbourne isn't a rugby town because clearly it's such an AFL town but there is an appetite for rugby here if that club had been managed well if there was any form of success people would have stuck around for that and Christy you mentioned about you know a cold morning in Canberra where parents have to use you know their jumper instead of having witches hats and stuff like that. I know what the AFL machine is even doing in Canberra. And congratulations to the AFL because I went to visit my little cousin in Canberra last year. My cousin from Dublin is married to an Australian girl. They have two children. And I bought them Brumbies jerseys. A few years ago when they had a firstborn, I bought them a Brumbies jersey because obviously I wanted him to be a Brumbies fan. And he loves his little jersey and he gave it to his little sister who wears it now. But when I was over there last time, it broke my heart. I said to him, you need a new Brumbies jersey because your little sister is wearing that. I'll get you one that fits you again. And he just went silent because he's so polite. And my cousin told me that AFL had been to his school and given him a little plastic bag in Sydney Swans colours. We're talking a plastic bag, not a jersey. And now he's a Sydney Swans fan and I have to buy him a Sydney Swans jersey. And that's, they don't even have an AFL team in yeah, Canberra. It, it says so much. And, and I was just talking to a former Super Rugby coach who's been with the Wallabies just last week. It was a larger piece around the coaches that I was, I was speaking yes. about. But he was talking about the fact as well that he's – what are – what are our players doing? Why aren't they getting into super into schools as much? And, and they need to. And this is part of the wider conversation that needs to take place in Australian rugby. Under the Rupa agreement, players can only spend X amount of hours in the local in the community, and it's not nearly enough. I forget the figure, but it's 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 underwhelming how little hours, how few hours that they spend at schools, and it's and. And that's got to change because a simple little gesture like that can change the direction about what sport a kid, a boy or girl wants to play going forward. It's it's a really valid point there, Kath. It's a, it's a touching one too. Um, tell me this, this weekend, Super Round is going to be in Melbourne. I think it's the third season that it's going to be yep. there. The, the great question is, is anyone actually going to be there to watch it? I've heard that understandably ticket sales have been really difficult. It's so challenging to promote an event in the middle of, I have lots of words for how I could describe what's going on in Melbourne, but none of them are permitted on a podcast, <laughs> but I think you know where I'm getting to. Like, it's very difficult because for the organizers of the event and it's owned by a company, that is external to the super rugby sides when they're trying to promote players or do media opportunities there's only one question for all of them like how did it all get to this why is this event in melbourne how do you feel about it being in melbourne like the fact that the melbourne rebels who don't even know that they'll exist next year 
yet apparently you can buy British and Irish Lions tickets to their match in 2025. I was heartened to see that. I might get some tickets. So how do they host every Super Rugby club in their home city and pretend everything's okay? It's incredulous to me that it's going ahead there. But I also understand the logistical realities. You can't just move cities, book all new hotels, lose all the deposits, rearrange the broadcasting, the outside broadcast. I get all of that, but I still find it incredible that it's going ahead. Like, I found it weird for the Brumbies to have to come into town and play against the Rebels in that environment on Friday night. That was weird enough. Never mind every side in town. We'll have the Wallabies new coach, Joe Schmidt. We'll have the All Blacks coach. Like, what must Joe Schmidt be thinking of what's going on in Australia? Like, he's come from Ireland and New Zealand, which is highly centralised. It's like we're cannibalising ourselves over here. I, I... I'm sure he won't be able to say what he thinks of it all, but he's coming to Melbourne to watch Super Round and it's awkward, it's messy. I think last Friday night, one thing I will say is that everyone concerned with the Melbourne Rebels and the staff that have been recontracted by Rugby Australia are they were all class. They weren't avoiding the elephant in the room. It was widely talked about what a difficult night it was, which I didn't know what way they'd go about it. But thinking of all those staff as well, some of those staff that have been recontracted are doing the role of four people because it's a skeleton staff and it's really upsetting and difficult for them. And I just don't know. Like, what do you guys think about Super Round here? Like... Yeah, I mean, judging by the first two iterations of it, Kath, you've got to think that this weekend is, is going to be a struggle and even more so with, with everything else that's going on. I like the concept of it. Clearly, it's been a success first in the NRL with with Magic Round and then uh, Gather Round for the AFL last year, you know, over there in Adelaide. Um, and being able to, I, I guess, sell um, when you bring TEG into it, you know, that's the idea of, of their part in it. They want to bring you know, tourism and, and turn a dollar that way. And that's how they sell it to the state governments for the support that they get in those respects as well. The A-Leagues clearly didn't generate much interest and you'd have to say Super Rugby has is, is, is struggled equally. So whether it's moved on after this year or the concept is forgotten, Christy, I don't know if what you've heard, um, whether it's, there's an interest, there's an appetite for it potentially somewhere in, in New Zealand um, where it could be played moving forward. Well, the Super Rugby bosses and and representatives of both Rugby Australia and New Zealand Rugby will be all meeting at the end of this week in Melbourne. So I imagine that's going to be one of the conversations that takes place because the valid points that both of you raise, I think it's an incredibly ugly look and it's going to do much more harm than good, unfortunately, by having this Super Round in Melbourne this weekend. What about if, if we widen the lens a little bit, guys, and just... Talk about what shape then Super Rugby may take in the future. And and I think, you know, we've made a big point, Kath, and you've done it so eloquently of bringing, relaying the human element to this story, the Rebel staff, the players, the supporters. And um, you tip your hat to those 4,000 odd people that did make their way out last weekend because, um, you know, you can only imagine how they're feeling knowing that their team might be about to be wound up and we, we shout out to them. Um but if we turn back the clock a couple of weeks, there was the uh, report, the rumour that came out that um, there had been the, this idea of a merger with Moana Pacifica. Um, certainly the information I got from New Zealand Rugby was that they were made aware of that idea, but it did not progress any further. Um, certainly they turned in a surprisingly good performance, I thought, against the Highlanders on, on Saturday afternoon to suggest they might be a little bit more competitive this year. Um, if the Rebels do go under, as seems probably more likely than not at this point, um, are we going to end up in the courts a la 2017? That's clearly not going to be a, a good look for the game either. And and then are we we thinking, Christy, that it might be a 10-team comp from next year, uh, 11 with another team brought in in Japan and the US? We keep hearing reports of these these grand plans that, that Super Rugby has got and a team in Hawaii or on the West Coast has been, you know, rumoured for any number of years now, I think former ESPN um, uh, 
writer, uh, columnist, sorry, and former All Black Craig Dowd was invested in a, uh, it had a vested interest in a team out of Hawaii. So, I mean, it's a little bit of anyone's guess at this point, but but how do you see, where is this all going to end up, I, I suppose? Oh, it's a million dollar question, isn't it? And I, I get the feeling like Moana Pacifica, they may stay around for, for one year, but I, I wouldn't think from beyond 26. Either way, a broadcast deal probably gets redrawn if indeed the Melbourne Rebels go under this year. There, there could be a court hearing, but I think this is the Rebels' fault as much as, much as anyone. And if they were to do this, I think it would do more harm than good, uh, much like hosting this weekend. Where the competition gets to, the one bit of merit that I think world rugby would see in in having uh, representatives from either South America or North America is the fact that the men's and women's World Cups are going to be played in, in North America in, in 2031 and 33. So by having a super rugby side, having a, a side that has more professionalism about it, perhaps a greater skill level required, makes sense given that Canada, the US didn't make the last men's World Cup that's a huge market that they're missing out on. And we saw that Argentina, the Haguaras, they, in fact, were a pretty good story in Super Rugby. They they made the final against the Crusaders in 2019. And the hope would be that a North American side, where the, whether or not it be in Hawaii or the West Coast, probably in, in Los Angeles, the hope would be that it follows a similar trajectory that the Haguaras, and that flows into the national team. I think it's a long shot. We've seen that Super Rugby expanded well beyond its means for many, many years, and I think people just got sick of a competition that just changed every second as well. Who was in the right mind, the executives that thought, let's continue to shake up this competition every second year? Seriously. Oh, please, shake your head. Yeah, you look back at that conference model when there was the six South African teams and the Sunwolves and Australia and New Zealand were kind of in their own conference, but in two separate conferences within that, it was, oh, you're right. The, 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 that was, you know, arguably the start of the, the downfall of, of well, Super The beginning Rab- of the end. Beginning yeah. of the end. That's what I'm looking for. Thanks, mate. Um, and I think thought- we need to ask people what they want. Like, how do they yeah, not do market research and I know that costs a lot of money it really does like successful codes spend so much money on market research and data and but this sitting together with your mates in a room and a wine and coming up with ideas like there's got to be a process here it's absolutely insane and even that supposed merger that I understand when reports of that merger came out, I contacted sources at the Rebels to say, was that your idea or did you genuinely not know about that idea until you received documents for the British and Irish lines? And they genuinely didn't know till they saw their name had been changed on documents they were emailed. Like, I don't really have words for how this thing is operating right now. I really don't. But we need to think really hard about what fans want. Who do they want to see playing each other? Because sport's all about rivalry. And in a way, it's about, like, hatred. You know, you look at AFL, the teams you want to play against. You want to play against that team that your team hates. It's called rivalry. And what are the big rivalries if they extend the competition again? They really need to think about that. They need to do it properly. They need to stick with it when they go ahead with it. It's it's mind-boggling how it's panned out over the past year, few years. Yeah, we're allowed to use the word shit show on this podcast, uh, Kath. So it's probably the one you were, think, you were thinking of earlier. So I'll I'll jump in there and give that the big tick. Um, look, it's it's been awesome having you on, Kath. Uh, so good getting your insights from down there. Uh, your your passion for the game and for the Rebels in particular is, is immense. We know you you fight the good fight to keep rugby on the ABC when you can because it can be a hard task at times. Thank you so much, Sam and Christy. You're my favourite rugby podcast without a shadow of a doubt so i'm the lucky one to finally get on we'll have you back for sure anytime thanks kath we'll slip you some money later cheers (laughs) thank you it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle 
a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Great to have Kat's thoughts there, Christy, wasn't it? Oh, Catherine Murphy is is uh, she's probably one of the best Irish people down here in Oz, and uh, it's plenty of about it. Yeah, there is, and I'll tell you, she had a great time in France at the World Cup last year, and it was awesome to have her part of the traveling media crew. Certainly was. Uh, all right, mate. Let's jump back uh, now and take a look at round one. Um, I guess you'd have to say got off to a flying start, right? That game in in Ooh, yeah in Hamilton. I'll, I'll remember where it was uh, any time now. It was an absolute <laughs> cracker, and you kind of got the feeling that grand final rematch um, was going to have every chance that it would be a, a pretty thrilling close encounter, and that's exactly what it turned out to be, uh, albeit with a few injury concerns for both the Crusaders and the Chiefs. There, uh, Damian McKenzie. Uh, had strapping around his thigh or hamstring. I don't know if we've had it confirmed what that is just yet. Uh, to Mighty Williams, is there anything better than seeing a prop in the clear, uh, the wind flapping through their hair, and then Wooshka, the sniper, got him. Um, horrible look for him, and he was on crutches later on, so that can't be too good. But we just spoke then a lot with Kath around the dire um, position that the tournament is, is in, and perhaps that's got more to do with you know uh, Australian rugby and the Rebels specifically, but that extends out beyond those boundaries as well. Whereas this game was just the ticket at the comp needed to get started. Oh, wasn't it just, it was, it was such a breath of fresh air, wasn't it? Because we'd been talking about, you know, the negative aspects of the game for quite a while. And it's, and it, it's not just the rebels. It comes off the back of a disastrous Wallabies campaign. So uh, it was awesome to just, just have the rugby back and it delivered, didn't it? It just went down until the last couple of minutes, 33, 29, Joshua, a couple of late penalties that helped get the chiefs across. Uh, but I look, I was just really impressed with the physicality that was on display, yeah. the fight, the Crusaders. They didn't go away, losing to Marty Williams. Like Owen Franks, we forget these sorts of guys to come back. And, and I know a lot of All Blacks have gone overseas just after the World Cup, but, but to have him come back and far out, how many minutes did he have to play? About 60 or so. And, and that's a heck of an effort for a big guy playing tight head prop and awesome to see. Um, to Damian McKenzie, you know, this is what Super Rugby is about. And I think it shows a bit of the difference in where Australia and New Zealand are at the moment. McKenzie is getting walloped, absolutely hammered at times, and he's running the ball to the line and he keeps running and eventually he cracks it. Awesome counter-attack that he sets up the brilliant try for his halfback. Uh, Xavier Rowe, was it, that scored? Yep, yep. Uh, Awesome, just phenomenal. And and that's typifies Super Rugby to a T. We need more of that. You know what I love too was that the first sequence of play actually ran about three minutes long. Yeah. Uh, I want to give Nick Berry a shout out. Not a referee I've been enamored with over the years, but I thought he did a marvelous <laughs> job on on Friday night uh, there in, in Hamilton. The game seemed to have long periods where it flowed really well. And that obviously comes down a lot to the players and not making so many mistakes and looking to to move the ball from turnover ball and, and not just get bogged down and have to set up a scrum and, and stop the game. So well done to Nick, uh, as we said, just the ticket the comp needed. But then we went to Melbourne. Um, we've touched quite a bit on it, but let's, I guess, focus in a little bit on the Brumbies because they were pretty sharp first up, you'd have to say. Really just sweated on the Rebels' mistakes and and punished them when they got down inside the red zone or there for the Rebels' mistakes, didn't they? Um, but I guess, man, who, who impressed you more? Was it was it Luke Reimer or was it the young number eight, Charlie Cale? Luke Reimer. But I'm a big Luke Reimer fan. I love he he turns games because of his just game awareness. Like Michael Hooper, the criticism I had about Michael Hooper is he was a quality player for so so long. But I can't I struggle to think of games in Test rugby that he won for Australia. And and we we all remember tests that George Smith or or David Polk would do. David Pocock, if I can get it out. Um, Luke Luke Reimer has an ability, and we've seen it over the last two years coming off the bench behind Pete Samu, just swings games, gets on the ball, crucial penalties that he wins. He's a, but he had struggled as a starter. This was the first time we've actually seen him with the yeah. number seven jersey on his back, really step up and deliver. Charlie Kikao, of course, he showed that explosive speed, 50 meter try. 
that gets the headlines, that gets the video clips. But Luke Reimer, I'm not sure if we'll see any of those three or four pilfers that he got on the weekend if they've gone up. But they were super influential in the game. And and it kind of, it, it was another thing that frustrated the Rebels. If it wasn't the line out, if it wasn't Equizani put, uh, pulling Tom Hooper's jersey yep. and, and therefore cancelling and robbing Rob Leota of a crucial top try. It was it was Ryan were getting on the ball and frustrating the Rebels' attack, which they just showed very little of. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and it was a really good point from Morgan Turunui in commentary. I thought about how you know flat the Rebels do play at the line and um, you know, that's that's good to see because it means you are attacking the line, but it also leaves you with very little time. If your supporting players aren't there and uh, on that clean out, ready to, to get over the ball, then, then players like Luke Reimer are going to have a field day, aren't they? And, and that's exactly what transpired. Good to see uh, Corey Toole as well back in the tries. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and this is a fascinating one, a conundrum almost for Australian rugby. Can Australian rugby back a little guy? Like we've seen South Africa back little men. Kurtley Aronster is tiny, like just tiny. He's probably smaller than, or he looks smaller than Cheslin Colby, whose arms are just made of brute steel. But Corey Tool, two tries. And, you know, if you want to capture the attention of your new incoming national coach, I think he certainly did just that. Uh, how did you see the 10 battle play out? Because it that seemed like it almost summed up their, the team's fortunes. And, and and the Rebels actually got a fair bit of front football in that second half. They just weren't able to do anything with it. Uh, Taniela Tupo obviously making an impact when he was not on the ground, made a huge impact uh, and and just allowed them to get front football with Rob Leota, Lucan Salakai-Loto, those kind of big guys to, to steamroll over. Uh, you know, where do you see the 10 kind of battle? And uh, you know, Carter Gordon, did he show some of those scars perhaps that Michael Lyon uh, was fearful of coming out of the World Cup? I think he did. I'm not sure that um, his head was in the game, which you could understand with everything else that's been going on down there clearly. But I think there was certainly one kick uh, that didn't find touch, maybe two, one that went dead in goal was there. Um, Missed shot of goals. Missed shot of that one, hit the post straight up, which was about five metres left of that, the left-hand upright. So... Uh, yeah, I felt I, I felt for him. It was, it was how I felt. Um, I thought that this guy is, is is still carrying, as you said, the scars, the wounds of of the way he was managed last year, um, which you and I agreed. I think Eddie got it wrong, and perhaps we'll come to the documentary. I know you spoke about it on the Raw podcast last week, but we're going to run short on on time today. But there's been plenty of coverage out there about it. Um, but I thought Noel Lucio looked, you know, really sharp, didn't he? Um, combined well uh, with his back line. Uh, I thought controlled the game when the Brumbies had to uh, really well as well. Uh, and he'll be buoyed by that first up uh, performance, won't he? I, I know you spoke to him in the preseason after he'd come back from Toulon. And um, it, it's weird. I saw something today. I'm not sure who it was. might have been in Paul Cully's. Whereas the players who, who missed the World Cup last year, is that going to turn out to be the absolute blessing in disguise that they're not carrying that baggage this year? You think of guys like Lolisio, Corey Toole, uh, Ikatau, um, you know, Tom Wright, you know, these guys that, Hey, that, that wasn't their problem. They, they did their best. They weren't selected. They went into preseason and, and they're ready to go this year. Whereas those others are, you know, when they get into the dark times, are they thinking, geez, this is kind of how it all fell apart in France. And is it all going to fall apart just like that again? Yeah, and the others, you know, that list goes on with with uh, the Lonigan brothers, Lachlan and Ryan, and yeah. Hunter uh, Paisami was really strong for the Reds, which we'll come to yeah, shortly. Kate C- C- Caden Neville as well. I-, I thought Nick Frost was was really good. Uh, I love his work at the line out. Uh, so, you know, that's not surprising, is it? He's he's a he's a tall man, but but they are humming from the outset, and they delivered what many people hoped. Uh, really big tick for the Brumbies first half, and they've got a, a a big test against the Chiefs this weekend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Later Friday night in Perth, um, mate, I made it to halftime in this game um, after a couple of beers and a, a glass of, or two of rosé, so I was probably needing to go to bed. Um, but the first, I watched the first two, three minutes of this game and I just thought to myself, this is every game the Western Force have ever played. Like I could tell you what the result is going to be here now. Um, the Hurricanes will soak up this, well, I'm not even going to call it pressure. I'm going to call it defensive time. Uh, wait for their opportunity, sting them fairly easily, run up sort of 20, 25, 30 points in the first half, take the foot off the gas. The force will get a couple of, you know, tries to f- improve the scoreboard slightly. Woke up Saturday morning and, you know, Robert's your mother's brother. What was the scoreline? It said exactly that. So uh, I, I know it's only round one and we can probably be too harsh at this point on on the basis of, of one game. I don't know whether they were feelings you had, but uh, I was just, I was deflated by that point. Yeah, there was a fair bit of optimism about the force this year. They were just making the right noises. And I know that players are being eyed up to go there. And, yeah, they were active in the transfer market. Uh, Crony generally talks a positive, upbeat game. Oh, dear. Yeah, that was that – was, uh, that burst the balloon almost. But I think the realities came home that, once again, if you don't have a type five, you don't win games of rugby. And that's just what the, the, the force – Losing Isaac Rodder, losing Jeremy Williams, they were big blows. Uh, another big blow, Harry Hooper, who'd only just arrived at the club, yeah. being out for three, four months. So I think it is. So they they are going to continue to struggle to win games if they don't manage to resolve that that situation there. If I'm the force, I'm going hard after Taniella Tupo. Uh, if indeed the Rebels do go under, I'm trying to get a Matt Gibbon to come there as well. Like Marley Pierce is going to be a good player, but he's 20 and he's and he's you know he showed that that against a, an experienced operator or against a, a pretty big front row for the Hurricanes. You can't just throw a 20 year old out there who's Barely played more than a handful of games of Super Rugby. And, yeah, their line-out crumbled in the second half. They lost, I think, three or four in a row. Um, yeah, that, that's where they need to fix it up and, and really quickly. Tom Franklin did a good job coming in, another recruit. I'm not sure where Atu Moli is. He's a guy that you've got to think that just comes straight into it. There's no questions asked about that. So, yeah, some work to do with Simon Cronin and his tight five because it just meant that the force just got very little ball. Structure wasn't quite there. And it was only in the second half that Ben Donaldson started, ben Donaldson started running to the line a little bit more. He needs to do that more. needs to challenge it more. Max Bury found his feet more in the second half too. He's got such great acceleration. I'd love to see him just pop up more and more. What's your understanding, if we just pivot slightly before we come to the Reds and Waratahs, Christy, around, uh, say, a 10-year Tupu contract situation? If the Rebels did go under, would that void that contract only with the Rebels or would, by extension, Rugby Australia, would he still be contracted to Rugby Australia um, for that 2025 season? Um, What do we know about that? Well, it's a really... Good question because I think it really just allows for whatever the player also Rugby Australia potentially wants. I think it almost blows it up. However, if okay. the player wants to play that that they stay, they can stay. He's on one point two million. He's not looking to go overseas. Even a one point six million dollar contract overseas, which I think he has been offered, it's just not going to do enough to swing him because he's going to have to play double the amount of games and he's going to be overseas when he's got a little kid and probably not have the structures and the pretty nice lifestyle that Australia offers. So I don't think he'll be desperate to leave uh, unless that number doubles. Uh, I would think that the force and the Waratahs, the two sides, you know, potentially the Reds under a new environment, your coaching environment, but I would think the, the force is his preferred uh, option at the moment. The Tars, I think, from a Rugby Australia point of view and from an would be the best because it's the biggest marketplace they need more props. Uh, he could be a bit of a game changer in that Sydney kind of atmosphere, I think. Um, watch this space. It's a really interesting one. Let's go to... And, to... and, and just before we jump off that, sorry, Bruce, is Rugby Australia and the financial stress that they are in as well. They actually might be thinking, could we offload this guy? We can clear and, the decks here, yeah. And so that's a consideration moving forward I still think he's a he's a genuine match winner, and we saw what he 
showed when he was standing up and playing, he's so destructive when he plays. Uh, I'd be looking to keep him, but at the right franchise. Yeah, all will play out, uh, as we said, in Melbourne and beyond and the coming weeks and months. Um, right, let's wrap it up, mate. Uh, we haven't got time to sort of cover uh, the games in Whangarei and Dunedin, but good wins to the Blues and, and Highlanders. And, yeah, I, I would say I really enjoyed the, the Highlanders-Moana-Pacific awesome game. game. Uh, it was surprising. Uh, it was a high standard and, and good open running rugby. Um, let's go to, to Brizzy, though, mate, before we, we wrap up today. Um, again, this was a... A big opportunity uh, was on the main channel, Channel 9, free-to-air, wasn't it, uh, in some parts of Australia. Uh, um, and the, the ratings, I think, topped out about 176,000, which um, is, is pretty good uh, given what's been going on. Um, so I think they'll be pleasantly surprised with that. Uh, but a, a good first-up game for the Reds. It wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, was it? And Les Kiss said that post-match. But um, they scored five tries plus a penalty try. Um, two from the mall. Uh, look, really which looked really well set up um but the one i really liked was was josh fluke going through cutting back on the angle and the work that fraser mcwright did off the ball there to get through sort of that two players wide on the support line and take that pass and we had a chat with uh with fraser at the john eels medal the other week didn't we and you could just see he was he was chomping at the bit to get going again he's one of these guys that was part of the debacle in france and just wants to get back out to doing what he does best and that's that's play good footy and um i thought he was fantastic along with that entire reds back row the other night oh yeah yeah he was awesome wasn't he and he he showed probably both elements of his game i think he got on the ball and got one breakdown still and he was just immense in a in attack and an ever present option uh, which of course he he ended up showing with that try uh I think the red. Like, it was interesting. The the Reds turned down multiple shots at goal, and even uh, you know in the lead up to the try that Tate McDermott I think scored, and that was an interesting one because there was you know, one that was directly in front of the post, and I think they ended up actually even um, playing on quickly. It was a odd call to say the least, but their attacking intent and Les Kiss, all the players have been saying the thing that Les Kiss has been encouraging is to pull the trigger and know yep. when to pull the trigger. And I thought they pulled the trigger at the right times. And that was really, really evident and pleasing because they played an attractive style of rugby, greasy kind of conditions an Australian Derby. I won't say for once, but it lived up to the hope, didn't it? And the Waratahs weren't quite there. They didn't really click, but a couple of, you know, a fortuitous try to Dylan Peach to get his second and a, a really nice intercept from Mark Nwanganeroasi to announce himself to all the rugby league people might have been watching. Um, back on the inside to Jake Gordon, well-taken try. So they stuck at it. I don't know. And I know that you, letter of the law, probably the right thing to to disallow uh, or to send Max Jorgensen for a yellow card as well as the, uh, the penalty try there. I just thought it was so tough and that swung the game. And I think the Reds probably would have won anyway, but that was a really big blow on the stroke of half time. Yeah, they were playing the better footy, no doubt about it. And it kind of felt that, you know, the Waratahs were always that little bit behind from that moment onwards. You thought, well, if they can just get one try here in the second half, they might be able to to close the gap and, and set up a, a closer finish than perhaps panned out. But you're right. I, I was thinking about that on it. And we know how much gray area there is in rugby, particularly at the breakdown where, you know, any one tackle contest can probably generate four or five different penalties if you're really looking hard for it. So um, we, we can't go too hard on, on this one, but it was a case of say if Max Jorgensen is, um, you know, the ball is three meters away and Jordan Pattaya is clearly going to get there and jumps at him and grabs him around the wrist, grabs him around the waist rather um, with that distance to go. But the fact that the timing was, was a split millisecond out, like it was seriously one frame on the slow-mo replay, wasn't it? That um, he was a judge correctly. I thought um, just that tad, tad bit early. So Sometimes you think in a situation like that, and in the wrap up for ESPN, I reference it's a bit like the the deliberate knockdown law, right? Whereas if it's a hand that goes out, and one way we saw it in in Wales there a couple of years ago with with Kurt Lebeel, the ball you know going slightly backwards, but despite landing in front of the player, and you think, well, that the, the margins are so fine, and this was certainly a case of that the other night. Where should there just be a little bit of leeway there for the referee to say, look? This is so close. I know by the letter of the law, it's a penalty try and a yellow card. And 
I must say I'm not the biggest fan of the double whammy either, uh, nah. particularly at the rolling ball, because it is such a weapon that I think a penalty try is, is enough. Um, but you know, that's up to World Rugby to decide. If it's cl- if it's clearly deliberate, I'm happy for a yellow. But there, as you say, and, and Morgan Terminoy, I think, said it rightly that it's just too big a penalty for something like that. Uh, I completely agree. What what I was impressed with as well, I thought Tom Liner was uh you know understated. I thought he was measured. Um, I thought it was a good return. He's played very, very little rugby, but the balance of Hunter Paisami, Josh Fluke. I really liked that in the midfield. And and it's good to see a Paisami fit firing. He's off contract at the end of the year. He gives the Reds some shape. He allows them to play through the middle, but also out wide. Um, we saw him score the put on some big hits. It was a really nice matchup there at times between Paisami and Parisi. That was the sort of thing that gets you to watch. And and hopefully Parisi's right. I think he had a concussion. Hopefully, from a TARS perspective, they're up against the Crusaders this week. And Rob Penny might just be knocking on the Waratahs door, just reminding him um, things perhaps could have been different. But yeah, Pice Army, big one. The 12 jerseys really, really wide open up, this year. Up for grabs. Yep. Yeah, completely up for grabs under under Joe Schmidt now. And Lalif Kaifaketti, it's great that he's been cleared of, of a serious injury. Um, got injured, I was there at the training and ambulance came and it was a pretty difficult situation, particularly for the, you know, of course, Lalakai Fakedi, but his teammates were, you know, shocked and uh, just praying for the best, really. And um, hopefully he can get back out in the field sooner rather than later, but awesome that he, he doesn't have a really serious injury and and that's great news. Yeah, sending our best wishes out to Lalakai as the entire rugby community has been doing. And, and just a, a note on the Parisi and, and the Paisami matchup, that's kind of what Catherine is referencing, wasn't it? That tribalism, these these rivalries that, you know, the AFL, the NRL has. And and for, you know, we, we love, well, it depends on where you come from, that the addition of the Force and the Rebels, they just haven't been able to establish these rivalries with the other franchises, have they? The Force and Reds had a little bit of, you know, tension there because they took quite a few players from the Reds originally and the Brumbies and the Rebels when that um, they just kind of first came in. They stole a couple of games from from the Brumbies, but they just haven't really uh, built into anything like the Reds and the Waratahs or, or the Brumbies and the Waratahs, sadly. So um, we shall see on that front. Uh, right, mate, you're a busy man. You've got to head off. Um, thanks for your uh, time again. Um, of course, Super Round, we look forward to. Just quickly, what game are you really looking forward to this weekend? Jeez, that's a good question. I think it's it's a litmus test for Australian rugby this weekend. There's three games, three Trans-Tasman fixtures. There's the Chiefs, Brumbies, Waratahs, Crusaders. The one that I'm looking forward to most, Reds, Hurricanes. Uh, I think it'll be fascinating to see how the Reds stand up. The Hurricanes have lost still quite a few players. Um, you know, Artie Sevilla being the biggest one. And, and not many people were necessarily expecting them to be top two or three, but they, you know, there was a good statement from them on the weekend. If the Reds can challenge them, I think that means that Australian rugby will be in a much healthier position than it perhaps was one or two years ago. Yeah, agree. I think that's also a you know a litmus test for the Reds just to see whether that was against a, a Waratahs team that perhaps is well below their best or where they might be this year as an indication or this Reds team could actually do something special in 2024. All right, cheers, team. Uh, we'll see you again in seven days and then do your best to enjoy Super Round. We will. <laughs> cheers. <laughs>